Okay, if you'd like to open your Bibles up to the book of Romans. Today we're doing something of an introduction to the book uh, as we get started. Pastors and theologians just get excited about the book of Romans. Um, yeah, we do. <laughs> and they call it Paul's doctrinal masterpiece. And, and pastors and, and scholars are wired in such a way that they hear that Paul's doctrinal masterpiece and they go, ah. Oh. <laughs> How many of the rest of you respond that way to those words? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, is it wasn't written for scholars and pastors. It was written to the church, and it's to speak to the church. And, and that's what we're going to try to make it do or let it do as we go through this. It, it's one of the, it is definitely one of the key books of the Bible, of the New Testament especially. Martin Luther said something to the effect of, and this isn't the exact quote, something to the effect of, if all the scripture was lost but Romans and the book of John, the gospel of John, I don't remember his conclusion, we'd be okay. You know, it would be enough if that was all we had. Uh, and, and that's because Romans is just, it, it, it is just jam-packed with theology, with, and when I say theology, with the truth we need to know, the things we need to understand about God, about Jesus Christ, about salvation, and, and frankly, about ourselves. Uh, and, and that's what we see when we look at Romans now. I want to think about what did it look like, what did they see in it when it first came out? Paul, what was Paul thinking when he wrote this letter, what was he trying to accomplish? What did the first readers think? I picture the first pastor that you know, because because uh, you know Paul's in in on his in in the area of Corinth, somewhere around there. That's where it's written from, and he sends this letter to the church. It's addressed to the church at Rome. Some individual first opened that that letter, right? What was he thinking when he gets this? When, when and we'll talk about that a little bit. So today we're going to have an introduction to the book of Romans. Uh, we'll look at the first few verses before the book really gets going, and, and we'll find out that there's a lot, even in the part that we usually skip over, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Paul, some servant of Jesus Christ, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, too. So, okay, now we start reading. We find out there's a lot there before we get there. So we're going to look at Paul's situation when he wrote it. We'll look at the situation of the Church of Rome when he wrote it, and then we'll take that look at the contents of those introductory lines. So Paul, at the time, he wrote Romans. I want to tell you, he was nearing the end of his third missionary journey. And for some of you, you go, okay, that locks it in exactly, because you've taught Sunday school and you know exactly where that is. And others of you go, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so we're going to review again a little bit. A quick history of Paul. This guy, Paul, who was originally called Saul, later he's called Paul, he was born in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus is outside of Israel. If you look at a map of Israel with all the cities, you know, the most detailed map, you can look at it all day and all night. You'll never see Tarsus because it's not there. It's not in Israel. It's up in what today is Turkey, Asia Minor. It's up in the northeast uh, corner of the Mediterranean Sea there. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a port city, and, and it is a significant city. Uh, because he was born in Tarsus, he was automatically born a, a Roman citizen, which did not happen everywhere or to everyone. Uh, you could be born in a lot of cities and not be automatically a Roman citizen, even though it's part of the Roman Empire. But there were some cities that were signif significant in special ways. Tarsus was one of them. Because Paul was born in Tarsus, he was a Roman citizen, and that was a card he was willing to play. You know, the fact that he was a citizen, he was willing to use it. It gave him special rights. It gave him, him uh, special protections. And we see him pull that card, that citizenship card, in Philippi. 
in Philippi. That's where Paul and Silas are preaching. They cast a demon out of a spirit girl. Uh, she can no longer read fortunes. They lock, they lock him up. They have him beaten. They throw him in prison. There's an earthquake. In the morning, they, they come to, to uh, escort him out of town. He says, you're going to just dismiss me, a Roman citizen? And they go, uh-oh. And they come back. I mean, they're going to kick him out of town. He says, you're going to escort me. And so the city officials come out and publicly escort him out of town, politely and publicly. That's, you know, my uh, full vision of it. Because they came and they, they didn't come out. They didn't boot him out like they had planned to. You know, it wasn't Marshall Dillon say, get out of Dodge before noon or you're going to, you know, get shot. It was they came out and escorted him out because he was significant because he was a Roman citizen and they had violated his rights and they knew it and he called them on it. And so at Philippi, we see him do it. We see him do it with the centurion in, in Jerusalem. Paul is that back there. That was before he wrote this letter, that incident we just read. This incident I'm about to talk about happened just after he wrote this letter. He sent it off, and then this one happens. He goes to Jerusalem to deliver the offering we're going to read about. He goes to Jerusalem to deliver this offering. They have a riot because the Jews don't like Paul. The centurion comes in to rescue him from them. He, he rescues him from them. Then he takes him off, and, and he doesn't understand what's going on, so he's going to interrogate him Roman style right? Which means they're going to beat it out of him. And Paul says, wait a minute, can you do that to me? I'm a Roman citizen. And the centurion says, well, how did you get your Roman citizenship? I paid a lot for mine. And Paul says, well, I was born a Roman citizen. And the centurion goes, whoa. And so they don't beat Paul. And then later on, Paul is in prison. He is, he is in jail. He is in jail in Caesarea, He's basically in prison from the time that Roman took him to prison. He's kept for two years, and at the end of that, he appeals to Caesar. They're giving him, and one they've given him trial after trial after trial. Each one they find nothing wrong with him, but they don't want to let him go because it's like nobody wants to 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 be involved with this. They wish he could just like disappear, and so they ignore him and leave him in prison. And now this time he says, "I've had enough of this." He says, "I appeal to Caesar." Right? You can do that because you're a Roman citizen. You can't do that if you're not a Roman citizen. You know, if you are on, in uh, Libya and there's trouble and you run to the American embassy, is there still an American embassy in Libya? No, okay, somewhere where there is an American embassy. You run to the American embassy and you say, help, let me in. They say you're a citizen. You say, yes, they let you in. But if you're not an American citizen, they say, stop right there. You don't have protection here, right? Paul had the rights to appeal to Rome uh, for, for justice because he was a Roman citizen, and he was willing and able to use this card, right? He did that. But at some age, being born in Tarsus, he was sent to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to be trained by Gamaliel, who was a leading uh, rabbi, a leading teacher. He's, he's, he, we find him in the book of Acts. Uh, defending Christianity, at least to an extent, and he's sent there to be trained by Gamaliel. And then as, as a rabbi, as a student, he becomes a, a, the most, one of the most vicious opponents of Christianity that's out there. He becomes one of the most vicious persecutors of Christianity that they have. And he is, he is the one who's foaming at the mouth and seeking permission to, to, to persecute these Christians. And he gets permission to go to, to, to persecute them to Damascus, uh, where he is on the way. He's, he's stricken down and he is converted. He becomes, goes from being a persecutor of Christianity to becoming a proponent of Christianity because he knows his Bible. He knew he, all the things that made him hate them so much. He looks at it now and he goes, wow, this actually supports Jesus Christ. This actually supports Christianity, and he was able to refute the people who, who opposed him. He was well-trained, and he becomes an outstanding evangelist and teacher, right? That is Paul. 
Then we turn to Acts chapter 13. So I'm going to turn there instead of just keep summarizing and flying like I am. In Acts chapter 13, Paul, who is in Antioch teaching in the church in this official status, uh, he is praying with some other leaders of the church. They're praying and fasting. They're not praying, dear Lord, please point us out to where we're supposed to go. They're not praying, we want to be missionaries. They've never heard of missionaries before. They are the first. It's a new concept. But now they were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and with Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And they go away and they go to Cyprus. And from Cyprus, they go up into Asia Minor or Turkey, and they visit this area we, that they, at that time they called Galatia. Paul later writes the letter of Galatians to these very people. Uh, and that's, that's where they go, and eventually they come back. And that is called the first missionary journey. Uh, it is the, it's not only the first missionary journey of Paul, which is, is what it's known as, it's the first missionary journey, period, unless you want to count Jonah, <laughs> right? Because uh, it's just not something they did. It's not something they understood that way. But here's, here's what makes them the first missionary journey. They were commissioned by a church. They were designated by the Holy Spirit. They were commissioned by a church and sent out with the church's prayer and blessing. Okay, they didn't have support, which is a normal aspect of missionaries today, because they didn't have the means for that kind of thing. Philippi was the ones, were the ones that figured out that support things and supported him that way later on. But that is the first missionary journey. And so they go over these places, and then they come back. They come back, they go down to Jerusalem, they have some, a big hut to do and hubbub going on. But we go to Acts chapter 15, and we go to verse... Uh, what is it? Uh, I don't have the verse written down. Verse 36. They come back. They're in Jerusalem. They go back to Antioch. And then it says in verse 36, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So he says, I want to go back. I want to visit these cities again and see how they're doing. He's concerned about these churches. They're baby churches. They got planted in the midst of persecution. He got beaten, bet, stoned and left for dead in, in, in uh, Lystra. These are places he's concerned about. He's worried about these people. He wants to know how they're doing. And so he goes, they go back through there, but they don't stop there. They keep going west. They keep going west. Eventually, they cross over into Europe. Uh, which is where Corinth is. It's where they, they go to, to Thessalonica, they go to Berea, they go to Athens, they go to Corinth, and then eventually they come back home, and that's called the second missionary journey. It took a little bit longer. He stayed in Corinth for a year and a half uh, when he was there. This was a much longer journey, and that's his second missionary journey. He goes back to Antioch, and, and he stays there for a while, and then after a while, it's time to go again. Paul has itchy feet. So we go to Acts chapter 18. I'm sorry, it's not Acts chapter 18, what do I want here? It is, Acts chapter 18, verse 23. And having spent some time there, he, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, and then we start reading about him being in Ephesus. 
and he goes to Ephesus, and, and if you read just the book of Acts, it looks like he stays in Ephesus for the full, and he's there for two years, but he uses it kind of as a home base, because we also find out he traveled to a lot. He went to Corinth. He goes up to, to, to Troas. He possibly went up uh, north of, of, on the east side of of, uh, I mean, the west side of Greece. Uh, he, he visited these different places at some time. It seems to be during this trip. But Ephesus is his home base while he's on this trip, and, and he's there for, for two full years. And towards the end of this uh, third missionary journey, he writes three very significant letters that we have. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. He writes those three letters. We know this from a, a collection that he's getting ready to take and deliver to Rome. And we read about this collection in all three of those books. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, is, is his first writing about this offering that they're going to take. They're all the same offering. Ro, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So he's talking about a collection that is being gathered to send to Jerusalem. That's what he wants to do. He said, Kenya, no, not Kenya this time. We'll save that for 2000. 24, honest, right? Not, not moving that puppy again. That's what he, I can't say that because I hope he's not. But that's what he says. We're going to send it to Jerusalem. Then we go to 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, we could read chapters 8 and 9 and get the full picture of this. But we're just going to read a few verses in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the peace of God, or the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of, affliction, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave first to themselves and then to the Lord. And he says they're begging for the opportunity. And he's talking about them begging because they're a poor church too. He says, they're, they're poor, they're being oppressed. He's talking about the church of Thessalonica, for example. That's, that's part of, of this area of Macedonia. Thessalonica, Paul was there three Sabbaths and got run out of town. Went to Berea, and they chased him out of Berea also, and he came down south to, to Athens and, and Corinth, and that's Achaia. But he, he's worried about those churches, but they want to give. They're begging for the chance to give. It's the same offering. Right? Like I said, we could have read all of chapters 8 and 9 and got more information, but it's the same offering. And then we go to the book we're looking at, Romans. It's the first in, in order, but it's not the first chronologically. In Romans, he's writing about the same offering, chapter 15, verses 22 through 28. And it's obvious it's the same offering. It's not something like you say, well, the pastor thinks it is, but I have doubts. It, this is obviously the same offering. Listen to how it's described. Uh, for this reason, I have been often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no better place for me in these regions, since I have for many years uh, had a longing to come to you, when I go to, is that the passage I want? Yeah. When I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, to be helped by, on my way there by you, when I first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles, and he goes on and talks about it, he says, he says I want to go to Rome. I'm going to go to Rome, and when I get to Rome, I want to share some blessings with you, and then I want you to help send me on to Spain. But before I do that, I have to take this offering to Jerusalem. Right? And so he's talking about the same offering in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Romans. So we know these three were written about the same time. They all go hand in hand. Right? He's writing these things. And this has, has, has some significance. By this time, by the time he wrote, writes this, Paul is well known. He is somebody in the who's who of Christianity. Not only that, in the who's who on the, the bad guys as far as Jerusalem, Jews are concerned, he's in their who, 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 who. Who, who, who loves you? <laughs> Jesus, he's the one. Sorry. <laughs> By this time, he's well known. If we, if we turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 6, this is in Thessalonica. This is before he wrote the letter, these letters we're talking about. This is during his second missionary trip, and these letters he's writing towards the end of his third missionary trip. So we're separated by five years-ish, right? We don't know exactly uh, the timetable for these things. But in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, here's what they say about Paul. When they, they, again, it's a persecution thing. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brothers before the city, the authority, shouting, these men have, who have upset the world have come here also. Right? They're talking about Paul and his companions. And the way the New American Standard says, these men who have upset the world. Your version might very well say, these men who have turned the world upside down. Powerful words. I like that so much better because it's so powerful. They're, they're talking about the, 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 what these guys have done to the known world around them. Right? These people in Thessalonica are upset because he's upsetting business. They, they, they didn't like him in Ephesus because he's upsetting business. Uh, they, they don't like what he's doing. He's impin, infringing on what they do uh, because he is making a big impact. We get to Acts chapter 1, 28. And this is after his third missionary journey. He's back in Jerusalem, and this is how the Jews are describing him. Acts chapter 1, verse 28, says this. Crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and law and this place. And they go on and accuse him of bringing people in there that he didn't. But here, here are their words. This is the guy who speaks to all people everywhere. Uh, he, and these are the Jews, and they know who Paul is. And then we would go on uh, to chapter, same message, or same premise, a few chapters later, chapter 24, verse 5. Uh, we read this. For we have found this man a real pest. <laughs> I love that. Some people, if they call you a pest, that's a good thing. We have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a known person. He is someone that, that whether you liked him or you didn't like him, you knew who he was. Uh, we all could, could say, I, mean, we could, I could start throwing out names, and you go, okay, yeah, everybody knows that guy. Uh, don't, may not like him, may do like him, but they, they know who he is. This is just after he wrote these things. By the time he's done this, Jews, Gentiles, saved, unsaved, everybody knows who Paul is. Uh, and, and out of the blue, he writes a letter to this church in Rome. He's never been to Rome. He's never been that far west. So he does not know these people personally. They don't know him. And so the church in Rome at this time, it is a church that was probably planted at Pentecost. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it talks about uh, people from all over the world being there, and it even says the phrase, visitors from Rome. 
Uh, what happens at Pentecost? People travel down to Jerusalem for the feast. Pentecost was the most popular uh, tourist feast in Israel, more so than the Passover, because the Passover was early in the year, and the weather wasn't, you know, it took a long time to travel. You had to leave in the winter when traveling was bad. Pentecost is the beginning of summer, much better weather for traveling to get there. So it was the one, even though Passover is the more sacred uh, holy day among Judaism at that time. Pentecost was the one when people actually traveled there the most, and people were there from all over the world. Well, what do you do after you do your holiday visits? You go home. Some of these people who had been there and heard the, God, the apostles preach at Pentecost on that one day, they went home and they took with them this new thing they heard. That, that is probably where the Church of Rome came from. Peter and Paul are both going to eventually arrive in Rome. They're going to die in Rome. But that hasn't happened yet. They haven't got there yet. Rome is uh, planted. It is a non-apostolic church in that sense. It was not planted by one of the apostles. It hasn't had their visit. Okay, so that is the church at Rome. It is also a church that for a while, this is a distinction, this is a big distinction, it is a church that for a while at least was 100% Gentile, which was not done back then. Churches, everywhere Paul went, he went first to the Jew, he went to the synagogue. Even in Philippi where they didn't have a synagogue, he went to the river where Jews would go to pray if they didn't have a synagogue. He went looking for the Jews and he plant, preached first among the Jews and then as he was rejected, he would build the church. But the church was always started with the Jewish people and they were the foundation of the church everywhere he went. Probably, I mean, these people who came back from, from Jerusalem, Jewish. But when they got to Rome, it, we run into Emperor Claudius. And you can look this up, not just in a, by in a Christian source, you can look this up, this up anywhere. Emperor Claudius in the year 49, 5050 AD, right in there, uh, we don't know, have the exact date, kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were arguing, rioting over the subject of someone named Crestus. <laughs> you can decide for yourself who Crestus is, because probably Christ, but could be someone else, I don't know. Uh, and because of that, he kicked them out of Rome and Paul meets in, Cor or in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. He meets a couple of people who have been kicked out. Acts chapter 18, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. Okay, so the, they, they had been kicked out of Rome. Well, what happened to the church in Rome during this time when the Jews were kicked out? They had to figure out how to function, right? They had to figure out how to function without the Jews who were their, their basis. These were the people who knew the scriptures that they had available to them. These were the people who were the experts in how all these things worked. And all of a sudden, they had to function without them and, and figure out how to do things, and they did. And it, they, they, nobody knows exactly again, but by the time Paul actually wrote this letter of Romans... Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome. So it wasn't for a long time, because he says at the end in chat, Romans chapter 50, he says, greet the church, or greet Priscilla and Aquila, who are, who are I think he says exactly, friends of mine, something like that. Uh, and, and so they're, they're back in Rome by the time he writes, writes this letter. So they were only gone for, for a few years, uh, but it's long enough that Paul, that the church was for a while a Gentile-only church. Now, this is going to be really significant eventually when we get to Rome, chapters 8, 9, and 10, or 9, 9 10, and 11 uh, of Romans, and we deal with the question of what about the Jew? For a few years, it was a completely Gentile church, and it is also a church that you cannot miss the fact that it is the political capital of the world. 
at that time, at least of, of the Western world, Rome was the political capital of, of the Western world. And I don't know if that made any real difference at the time. Because Christianity, as of yet, has not faced an official persecution. There has been lots of persecution. It's been, it's been local. It's been religious. It's been uh, financially per- caused. It's been you know, culturally caused. But it hasn't been official. Uh, that's going to happen soon because Nero is the emperor right now after Claudius. Uh, but, but it hasn't happened yet. When ne- Rome, Nero burns Rome, he unleashes un- Leash's official persecution against the church. That hasn't happened yet. It'll be really significant later on when the church becomes an official government power, uh, but so far I don't know how significant it is. But it's also a church with a good reputation. So let's go back to Romans real quick. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And, and uh, we see what Paul says to the Romans about what he's heard about them. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, where would Paul hear this? Well, he's been working alongside of Priscilla and Aquila (laughs) who have left Rome, and they're talking about the church in Rome. Oh, yeah, the church in Rome, it's a good church. Peter, I mean, Paul, you would be really happy with this church. And and I'm sure that he hears it from other people because others have been booted out of there and and news spreads. But but that's the church of Rome at this time. It's a church that has been planted independently and doesn't have, or has lost, at least for a while, its solid roots. Uh, in, in, not, you, know, the, you, have, you can learn a lot in a couple of years. We don't know how long the church was there, but, but they lost a lot of what they'd had as their basis. And, and that's the church in Rome. So here you have Paul, this known person in the church, significant reputation. And we know Paul as this great, thinker, this great, uh, he's the one who's so great at explaining and, and, and giving us an understanding of Scripture. Uh, why does Paul write this letter? Well, for one thing, it's a missionary letter. We read it already. He says, I'm going to be going to Spain. I want to come through you on the way to Spain. And by the way, if you guys want to help me get to Spain, that'd be okay. <laughs> so he's writing a missionary letter. He's saying, he's saying I want some help from you. This, will, this letter will help you know who I am. You write missionary letters to tell people why they want to support what you're doing. Right? So that's part of the purpose of this letter. But he wants to go to Spain. He wants their help. But that's only a little bit of why he did this letter. I think he really wants to help this church in Rome. He sees this as a church that, that even though it's got a great reputation, even though it's got a good foundation, even though it's a good church, uh, they, they're missing a lot, and he wants to help them. And he knows he can give it to them. And he could say, well, you know, I plan to be there in a year. You know, I'm going to sail to Jerusalem. I'm going to do my thing in Jerusalem. I'm going to sail back. I can be here by this time next year. But Paul, by this time, also knows his life is tenuous, right? He describes things he's gone by. In 1 Corinthians 15, 32, I'm not going to turn there. You know what he says? He says, if it was only in, for, for this world that I fought with wild animals in Ephesus. So by the time he's writing uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, before he, 2 Corinthians, about the time of Romans, he's fought with wild animals in Ephesus, Okay. He happened to survive those wild animals. You didn't always survive the wild animals. Sometimes the wild animals survived you. 
right? That's the way it worked. He knows his life is fragile. He's been left on a heap in Lystra where they thought he was dead from being stoned. His friends drug him off, and what do you know? He's still alive or alive again. We don't know. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through this long litany of, of, of things that he's gone through, and he talks about, about being imprisoned, about being beaten, about being shipwrecked, about being a day and a half in the sea. And he goes through this whole long list of things that he's gone through. His life is fragile. We all know our lives are fragile, but man, he knew it better than most of us know because he had experienced that close, those close encounters with death repeatedly over a short amount of time. And while we all know through accidents and things like that, how, you know, many of us have been in situations where if someone hadn't been there, we could have died. He's in a situation where people are actively trying to do him physically harm with regularity, right? So, so he knows his life is fragile. He's going to write this letter to them. Instead, he's not going to wait. And it was wise because what happens after he leaves here? Well, he, he goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He spends two years. He's attacked by a mob. He's saved by a, a centurion who wants to beat the truth out of him. <laughs> he's then in prison for two years. Goes, go, finally gets sent to, to, to uh, Rome under arrest. Uh, and as they're traveling, they get shipwrecked. <laughs> and they crash, you know, land in Malta, uh, get washed up on shore in Malta and spend the winter there. Yeah, he was right. His life is fragile. It's dangerous. He better send the letter. And it's good for us that he did. Between, uh, I'm sorry, I said all those things. Uh, and so what he wants to do is he wants to make Christian teaching clear to this church in Rome. He says, you guys, there's some things you need to know. You need to have these things together. There was no New Testament in, the, in, in existence then. There was no theology books that they could go to. Uh, and, and, but through prayer, prayer and experience and careful thought and meditation, and don't forget the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because God does this thing where he works through both the human and the Holy Spirit to produce Scripture. Uh, he, Paul uh, presents this clear teaching of what the world, the church, needs to know. And we call it the Book of Romans. He is a teacher and he is an evangelist and he's writing to the under-equipped people of the Church of Rome to tell them what they need to know. So I want to just real quickly read through Romans 1, 1 through uh, 6. It, it, this is, this is, there's a lot in this. You go, that, that's before he actually starts the letter, Steve. It really is. Look at this. Paul, a bondservant, that's verse 1. And then we go down to, to uh, verse, nine, is it verse 9. What is it? Oh, verse 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, and it's not to get to verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. So, you know, Paul's typical thing, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus to this church at Corinth. Usually he, he, he covers that. He gets to the two part in either one or two verses. Some of them, it's, it's, you know, it's mid-sentence, but it's still the second verse. And so it's one or two. In, in the book of Titus, it actually takes him till verse 4. But in Romans, it takes him till verse 7. It's the only one where it's like that. It, 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 this isn't, letter isn't about him or the church. Listen to what it's about. Set apart, Paul, Paul the bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are called, Jesus Christ, to all who are called in Rome. So, so let me share with you a little theology. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Called. We have the call of God, right? Uh, the servants of God do what God calls them to do. Set apart. 
we have God's uh, uh, sovereignty. What's the word I want there? It's uh, election. He set us apart for him. He, he elected us uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, which he promised beforehand, we have predestination. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, we have the, the explanation of prophecy of Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's from Peter, Second uh, Peter. But, but uh, Paul says it right here, uh, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And he's talking about the inspiration of Scripture. Concerning his son, we have the identification of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who was born of a descendant of David, and we have both an affirmation of the Old Testament and a reference to the messianic lineage of Jesus Christ. According to the flesh, we have, whoa, he's the Son of God. He's also in flesh. We have Jesus is both deity and he's man. And you go, wait a minute, we're only in verse 3. Uh, who is declared, oh, declared the Son of God, we, we have that, I, I think I said that, with power from the, by the resurrection from the dead. And we have the resurrection and victory over death. According to the spirit of holiness, we have the Holy Spirit, and now we have the Trinity. Because we've had the Father, we've had the Son, and now we have the Holy Spirit. All the way down to verse 4 now. Uh, through the spirit of, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace, we have grace and apostleship, and we have the apostolic authority of faith. We have the importance of faith among all the Gentiles, and we have the church because we stepped out beyond merely Jews that he was, was first to reach and then to the Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles who make up the church for his namesake, among whom you also are the called according to Jesus Christ. We have, you know, the, so, so I'm the pastor who first, you know, you didn't know I was that old, right? I'm the pastor who first, first uh, gets the book of Romans, right? I'm the one that comes to church in Rome, Paul, Paul, oh no. First thing you do, you get a letter from an important person. You go, oh no, <laughs> this might not be good. Okay, so you're me, you sit down like this, you grab your cup of coffee, and you open it up, you start reading. And you know what I'm doing by the time I get to verse five? I'm putting my coffee down, and I walk out, and Wanda's out there. I say, hey, Wanda, call the elders. <laughs> Get them in here. We need to think about this. This is big. Yeah, I haven't read the rest of the scroll. I haven't you know, started you know, doing that. I haven't, I haven't gone through that scroll. But, but I know if, if this is what I re read in the first five lines, this is important. This is significant. This is something we pay attention to. Uh, that's what you do with this letter. You read it. And, and by the way, you, you not only call the leaders. You know who else you call? You call the scribes. The scribes. I actually have the scribes' names. Many people don't know this. Their names were Xeroxus, Canonus, Hulidus, and Packardus. <laughs> okay. Because you say, we need copies of this thing. We, 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 this, is not, this is not a one-and-done letter. This is a letter we want to have copies on, and we want to pass it on. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you that you've given us this letter, and I ask that as we go through this and learn what, what uh, you have for us, that as we learn these different things, that are these truths that are so important, that were so hard to be grasped uh, before they had these letters, we thank you for them. I pray that they impact us the way they're supposed to, the way they were intended to impact the early church. We seek your blessing, Lord, in Jesus' name.